of God's Word this morning to the Gospel of Matthew. As we continue in the Sermon on the Mount, we'll be in Matthew chapter 6 today, beginning in verse 9 and 10 in the Lord's Prayer. I want to ask you a question that I had to wrestle with this week, and I want you to wrestle with this morning. What is your greatest longing? What, what, is, what is it that you just intensely desire and long for? What is it that the end of the day, everything's been done, everything hopefully has been accomplished, more than likely, if you're like me, not everything got accomplished, but at the end of the day, you lay down and your head hits the pillow and before you drift off to sleep, you think about? What is it that when you wake up, you wake up and think about? What is it when you're driving down the road and kind of mindlessly listening to music that comes to mind. What do you, what do you long for? What do, you, what do you want? What consumes your thoughts in your free time? See, when we come to this passage this morning, we begin the Lord's Prayer, and last week we talked about the address, our Father in Heaven, the importance of that address, the, the privilege, the blessing, the right to be able to come before God Almighty and say, our Father, our Father. If, if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to go back and listen as we talked about the beauty of the truth and the reality of adoption in the life of the believer. What a blessing that is in our lives. But we get into today in our, our text as we continue in, we, we leave our Father in heaven and we continue into the next segment, Hallowed Be Your Name, Your Kingdom Come, Your Will Be Done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We get into this section. You, you might recall last week that I, I mentioned to you the structure, the overall structure of the prayer, how it begins with the address in the first part of verse 9 and then verses 9 and 10 have three requests or three statements of worship, three prayers or petitions of worship to God. There are three prayers that our Father would be exalted. Before we get down into verse 11 to 13, where we find three petitions, the three requests for our own needs. And so this morning, we're going to look at these requests that our Lord teaches us to pray for, these first three requests that our Father would be exalted. And, and as we do so, we're going to look and, and, and be confronted with, I think, four important questions that we need to wrestle with. And they all have to do with this, this idea of longing, what our deepest longing is. What is it we yearn for? What is it that we desire this morning? So first, as we look at this passage, we look at these requests, these desires to see our Father exalted, I, I want you to first see the connection between the first three prayers. Each one of them are connected to what precedes. So we see that hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The, the hallowing of God's name will occur as God expands his kingdom reign and more and more people are carrying out his will on earth as it is in heaven. Or if you want to look at it a different way and, and kind of trace backwards, you can see the connection in that God's will is carried out, per perfectly carried out only where his kingdom reign is. 
and only as people hallow or reverence his great name. So the three statements, the three requests, the three desires there are connected to one another and build off one another. The Lord teaches us to pray for these things now, but as we do, we also need to keep in mind that they are not going to be ultimately fulfilled until the return of Christ. So we pray with this eschatological hope, this hope of what will be in the final days, in the end, what will come in the return of Christ. But we pray nonetheless for these things to be made real now. So first is the connection between the three requests. Second thing I want you to see is I want you to see the significance of these three requests preceding the three requests of verses 11 to 13. So we begin here, and if you just know, just look in your Bible. Look at, look at the pronouns that are used. In verses 9 and 10, what pronoun is used? Hallowed be whose name? God's. Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now when you get to verse 11, what does it shift to? Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So we begin these, these, three, these first three requests, and they're completely focused on God. It's just like you remember the Ten Commandments. So the first four commandments direct our gaze upward, right? And then the last six direct our gaze outward, right? It's the same thing we see here, that we are supposed to first be thinking vertically before we are horizontally. That we look upward towards the Lord before we look inward or outward. So it's an important thing to to come to and to look at the the direction, the flow of the prayer that our Lord gives us. And so it brings us back to that first important question. I said there are four questions. That first one, do I long for the things of God? Do I long for the things of God? When we just look at the overall structure, we look at the flow, we look at the direction of the prayer and how it's headed, we are instantly confronted with the question, do I long for for the things of God? Or, on the contrary, am I so caught up in the the cares of the world, the desires of my flesh, that that my longings and desires are are more, or maybe better described by what John said in in 1 John 2, 16, where he said that the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is, is that what you would be consumed by? Is that what would reflect your greatest longing? That you you long for the things of the flesh? Do you long for the things of the eyes, the things that you see, the things that you lust after or covet for? Or do you long for the pride of life? All of these things in 1 John 2 describe the love of the world. We are called to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind above all others. The greatest and first commandment that we would love him. Is that our greatest longing? You see, Jesus in the model prayer here teaches that our gaze should first be on the Father. It's the same thing we see. We see the same precedent set forward in the psalmist. Here here are these, Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The psalmist just says, there's just one thing that I want, this one thing I long for, the one thing I ask for. And if you just stop there, you might be going, well, what is it? What is it? Do you want success? Do you want fame? Do you want prosperity? What is that one thing? Well, I just want to be in the presence of God. 
I just want to be in the presence of God. I long to be in the presence of God all the days of my life. Or Psalm 63, verses 1 through 4. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. You get the sense, you see the the longing, the, the yearning, the desire for the Lord and the psalmist. He earnestly seeks him. He thirsts for him. I love the imagery there that my flesh faints for you. He longs for the Lord. Or what about Psalm 84, 1 to 2, where the psalmist says, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. He says, my, 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 my soul longs for you. It faints for you, O God. I want to be in your presence. I want to be in your presence. I just want to be near you, God. All the things of the world, all the cares of the world, they, they just pale in comparison to my desire to be near you. Psalm 119.20, the, the psalmist writes, my soul is consumed. It's consumed with longing for your rules at all times. It envelops me. It, it, it absolutely fills me a desire to long for your rules. In Psalm 119, verse 131, he says, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. The the psalmist shared this common longing for the Lord, for the, the law of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the glory of the Lord, the presence of the Lord. They want God. They long for God above all other things. That, yes, they come and they pray and they have serious requests, serious trials, and they come and they pray about those trials. They pray about those requests. But it's in the context of a longing and a desire for God to be exalted. That is their greatest longing. They desire the Lord. We see that throughout Psalms. And the question for us is, is that our greatest longing? Do I share this longing? Would you say at the end of the day, I simply long for the Lord. I faint for you. My soul is consumed with a desire for you or if you're just really honest with us this morning would you say you know what actually probably not and if I said these requests if I said hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven honestly it would just be empty words I don't really long for the things of God I don't really long for his name to be hallowed I don't really long for his kingdom to come I don't really long for his will to be done it would just be empty words. What is your greatest longing? What do you long for? That's question number one. So we get into the, the three prayers for our Father's exaltation. The three prayers that, that we're led to pray and to focus on, thinking about longing for the things of God. The first one is this, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Now that's, a, that's a, probably a phrase, a terminology that you don't necessarily use all the time, right? Hallowed be your name. What does this mean? Well, first of all, when, when we, we think about hallowed be your name, we need to understand and remember, and some of you know this already, that when you see that in Scripture, name refers to the whole of the person. All that he is, all that he has done, his deeds, his actions, his character, it is 
who he is. So a prayer concerning God's name is a prayer focused on all that God has done and all that God is. We, we don't come here and we, we, we come here and it says, hallowed be your name. It is to set it apart, to consecrate it, to, to, to make it holy, or not to make it holy, but to declare it holy, to reverence it. Okay, that's what this prayer is. It's a prayer concerning the name of God, a desire for his name to be so reverenced, respected, and honored as it should be. That's what the prayer is. It is not, here's what it's not. It is not a prayer for God's name to be made holy. It's not a prayer for it to be made holy. It's a prayer for God's name to be reverenced, to be seen, to be understood as holy. We don't make God's name holy. Why? Because God's name is holy. It already is holy. Why? Because God is holy. God is holy. So we don't add to his holiness. We don't make him holy in the way we act, in the way we say, the things that we do. We're not increasing God's holiness. God can never be more holy than he already is. And because God is faithful and he's immutable, he does not change, he will never be less holy than he is. God is holy, holy, holy. That settles it. Psalm 30, verse 4, we are told to sing praises to the Lord, O you, his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. In Psalm 97, 12, rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Psalm 103, 1, many of you memorized, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Psalm 111, verse 9. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. It is holy. We don't make it holy. We come to Psalm 99. There's three times we see holy, holy, holy. Psalm 99 verse 3. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. Verse 5. Exalt the Lord your God. Worship at his footstool. Footstool. Holy is he. He, and then in verse 9, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. We're not tasked with the idea of making God holy. Our prayer, our task, our longing, our desire is that God would be seen and understood to be who he is, that he would be, he would be shown to be holy. He would be reverenced as holy. The 17th century pastor Herman Witsius said this. He said, God cannot be hallowed by any addition to the holiness of his nature, but merely by the declaration of that holiness which belongs to him. That's all we can do is to declare what already belongs to him. We don't make God holy. We declare that he is holy. So this is a prayer that we would recognize and ascribe to God the holiness due his name, that he would rightly receive the glory that he alone deserves. The theologian Leon Morris said this, he said, it's an aspiration that he who is holy will be seen to be holy and treated throughout his creation as holy. That's our desire. That's our longing, that God would be treated and thought of and reverenced as he truly is. Now, I think it's important that we look and look at the order where this falls in the prayer. Look at where it is. It's not an afterthought. It's not something that, that Jesus just tags on at the end and says, oh, hey, you know what? By the way, you should really probably hallow your name also. We, we want to treat God as holy and reverence him. No. It's, it's the beginning. It's primary. 
It's to be our foremost desire, our deepest longing, our primary objective, our highest happiness, our richest rejoicing, our dying declaration, our greatest aim, and our chief end to glorify God's great name, to hallow it, to reverence it, to declare that he is indeed holy. We should be a people that long for God's holiness, that when we walk out of here, we don't walk and flip a switch and go, hey, no more. We've sang holy, holy, holy. That's good. Now let's go and live our lives. No, we walk out of here and holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, is the theme of our lives, that we live a life as such that we are declaring the holiness of God and the way we live, the things we say, the way we interact with people, the things we do. We are declaring God's holiness. But it confronts us with a problem, doesn't it? See, the reality is that in our culture, God is not revered. He's not respected, generally. There, there may have been a day many years ago where uh, there was this general common ground of there was a reverencing of God's name. It was years ago, if so. But it's not today. See, today, God's name is most commonly used as the butt of a joke or as a form of cursing. He might be the big man upstairs. He might be the baby we pray to to laugh about at a movie. He might be the one we yell about when we're angry. But he's not really reverenced in our day, in our culture. So what would it take then? What would it take for the God who is holy to be understood and reverenced as holy in our day? How, how could we get to that place? I, I think the answer is intensely personal. I, I think it, it really invades our life. Because the answer to that question is it begins with the people of God living as the people of God, living holy lives because he is holy. It begins with me and you. It begins with God's people not taking the Lord's name in vain, but hallowing, reverencing the name of the Lord to be holy. It begins with us living what we believe, standing for what we claim, being holy because God is holy and worshiping him through our lives. It begins when we live our lives with the desire of Isaiah in verse 20, or chapter 26, verse 8 of Isaiah, where his desire says that your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. That the desire of our soul, our greatest longing, will be that those around us know that God is holy. It begins when we share the prayer of the psalmist in Psalm 57, 5. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. That we long for that. We long for God to be glorified. And it begins in our hearts. It begins in our actions. It begins in our words. So the question, here's the second question. The first question, what, do I, what is my greatest longing? Here's the second question I think we need to wrestle with this week. Is do I live in such a way that shows that I revere God? Do I live in that way? Do you live in that way? Do you live in such a way that those around you say he or she reverences their God? They live in a way that understands that God is holy. Do I live in such a way that shows that? The second request, second prayer in verse 10 is your kingdom come, 
your kingdom come. So the first thing, hallowed be your name. And then the next thing, the longing, the desire for the, the Father's exaltation is that not only would his name be seen and declared as holy, but his kingdom would come. And we read here kingdom, it, it refers or denotes that God's reign, his, his rule. In the Gospels, there's over 81 different references to kingdom. And most of them are in the Gospel of Matthew. So we see Matthew has this, this focus on the king who is coming, who has brought about his kingdom. And we see here the, the prayer, your kingdom come. We need to understand that there is both a present and a future element to the kingdom in the New Testament. There is an already and a not yet. So we, we, I don't know, you may remember several weeks ago or months ago, we were in Matthew chapter 3 and 4, and in 3, 2 and 4, 17, both John the Baptist and Jesus come and they're preaching the same message. You remember what that message was? They're preaching the message repent for what? For the kingdom of heaven is going to come down the road. You remember what he says? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's at hand. It's here. It's coming, right? And so there's this already. It was at hand. It wasn't in a physical manner, but it was here. It was at hand. Maybe, maybe a, a way to understand it, to, to, to wrap your head around what's going on here that's already not yet, is that the, the kingdom was planted at the coming of Christ and will be full, undying, in, or in full, undying bloom at his return. So the kingdom was planted, and as Christ continues to work and expand his kingdom, God continues to work and move among his creation at the return of the king, the return of the Lord, when Christ comes in glory and in power, and it's in full bloom. It's in full bloom. We, we currently live, if we, we want to understand how does this work in the already and the not yet, we need to understand that we currently live in the kingdom of the God of this world. We read in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that Satan is called the God of this age, the God of this world. And we live in this day as pilgrims, as strangers, as sojourners. That, that simply means that this is not where our primary citizenship lies. We are not citizens of this world. We are citizens of heaven. Flip over to Philippians 3, verse 17. Philippians 3, 17. If you don't want to flip there, you can listen or just jot it down in your notes. But Philippians 3, verse 17 to 21 helps us to understand this, that our primary citizenship is not here, but our primary citizenship is in heaven. Listen to what Paul writes in Philippians 3, verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So Paul just described those of the world. He described the world around us, right? That they are enemies of the cross of Christ. They stand opposed to the things of the Lord. They stand opposed to the kingdom of God. And he says that their end is destruction. Don't, be, don't forget, Paul says, what their end is. They will be destroyed. They have a bad ending. There is not good awaiting them, but evil, bad. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They live for their own appetites. Their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things, right? So he's describing the world there. Now, verse 20, he sets out the contrast. But our citizenship is in heaven, 
And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So, so here's the contrast. As opposed to those who are the world, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Don't forget where you come from. We, therefore, are not, not citizens of the world. We are pilgrims. We are strangers. We are sojourners. We live as ambassadors. We are representatives of the king of kings here. But we do not reside here. This is not where our citizenship is. And so you, can, you might see that churches are like little embassies flying high the flag of God's kingdom, declaring that God is holy. We represent the kingdom. We live out kingdom principles as the people of God now. We should be displaying what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom of God, that we represent him. We are his ambassadors. We are pilgrims. We are sojourners. We are strangers in this land. We do not live and reside here as primary citizenships. But we are representatives of the king. And what that means is this, is that Satan may be wreaking havoc in our culture. He may be wreaking havoc across our world, but we serve the king of kings who has supreme authority over all beings, all things, all places, all kingdoms. We serve the one who will overtake all other kings and all other kingdoms in his timing and in his way. So until that day, we remain as an outpost, an embassy of heaven in a sin-darkened world. Praying for what? His kingdom to come. Praying that he would usher in his kingdom. But as we pray for his kingdom to come, we understand that his kingdom rule is real and it is present today in the lives of his people who have been redeemed and serve him as Lord. This is what Peter wrote about in 2 Peter 3. Verse 11 to 13, he wrote this. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So our prayer is that God's kingdom would come, that he would expand his kingdom rule in the lives around us, us and ultimately that his kingdom would come in full consummation over all creation. It's the prayer that we long for. It's the glimpse that we've been given in Revelation 19 to 21 where we see the ultimate victory of Christ the King and the removal of Satan cast away and the new heavens and the new earth. It's the longing we share in the very last statement of Scripture in Revelation 22:20, 20, or an appropriate response. We think about God's kingdom come and what that will mean that we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus. That's our longing. So when we pray, your kingdom come, it's a, a request to ask God to expand his saving reign now. To expand his saving reign now. To redeem men and women. D. D. Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones called this an all-inclusive missionary prayer. Because when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we're praying that more and more people would come under his rule. More and more people to come to salvation, that, that hearts of men would be transformed, given life, and submit to the rule of Christ now. We long for that day. 
And as we see it coming, as we see it happening, and we look for the ultimate return of Christ when his kingdom is fully consummated, fully inaugurated in all of its glory and splendor, we look and we think about that and we share in the same words that, that Paul uh, uttered in, in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, the words of Maranatha, right? Where it just simply says, our Lord, come. Our Lord, come. Come, Lord Jesus. So here's the third question. The third question. Do I long for the return of my king? Do I long for the return of Christ? Is it something that, that I would share in that, that I would say, come Lord Jesus? Or am I too attached to the things of the world that, that it's more like, well, it, it would be great for you to come, Jesus, but maybe, maybe in like, 10 or 11 years when I'm able to see my kids do this or when I'm able to accomplish this, maybe down the road. Or, or if you could come maybe in like a year and a half, I would really like to know what it's like to be married, you know. Or, or maybe, you know, we, we're, we're okay with this idea of Christ coming, but, but maybe later. I've been there. And you know what that is? That's... It indicative of a heart that's holding on to something that longs for that and wants to push Jesus over here and say you know what I want you to come but I really want the things I want right now and that's primary and then you come later do we long for the return of the king finally in verse 10 the final request that we have here your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for God's name to be reverenced. We pray for his kingdom to come. We pray for his will to be done. It's a prayer that is ultimately only answered when God consummates his kingdom and inaugurates it at the return of Christ. But we are yet those who long for it now. We are those who anticipate all men living in accordance to the will of God. We are those who live out according to the will of God. We submit ourselves to his will this is simply a prayer that that God would be obeyed and honored perfectly on earth as he is in heaven you understand there are no disobedient sinful angels and saints in heaven what God says goes so it works J.C. Ryle wrote we here pray that God's law be obeyed by men as perfectly readily and unceasingly as they are by angels in heaven it's a prayer that, that goes against the flow of our world for those of the world live according to man's will instead of God's will. This is what, what uh, James Montgomery Boyce said was the ultimate problem of all the ills of the world is that, that men are not living for God's will, but they're living for their own will. We're living for what we want and what we desire and we're living according to the flesh and because we're doing that, it's causing all the ills and the problems in the world. It's the doctrine of sin. But we are those who pray for God's will to be done and in praying for that it means that we're longing for the day when men stop competing to gain glory for their own names and instead we join together in unison praising the name of king jesus it longs it means we long for a day when men stop striving with one another and stand as one in the kingdom of god it means that we long for a day when men stop propagating their own worldviews and rejoice in god's greater story it means that we long for a day when men stop making selfish decisions at the expense of others and instead make decisions based on the needs and what is good for 
others. It means that we long for the day when men cease living in open rebellion and defiance of their creator and begin joyfully living in obedience to the one who died to save them. It means that we live in a way that we say, oh Lord, hallowed be your name. Would your kingdom come? Would you bring your reign and your rule into our world and our lives in the lives of men around us? Would your will be done here? That's the prayer that is being prayed here by our Lord and be, we are led to pray. And so the final question for us today is this is am I submitting to God's will in my life today? Are, are you and I submitting to God's will? We, we pray for it, God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Are we submitting to it? Are, are we seeking to live out God's will in our life? Now, listen, you understand that doing that means that there are many times that it goes contrary to what you want and what I want, Right? Am I submitting to God's will? I want, I want to close by just taking you back to a scene we have in the Gospels. The scene that, that we have in the Garden of Gethsemane. Many, many of you remember that. You, if you don't, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He, he's been anointed. He's observed the Passover meal with his disciples. And right after he does that, he institutes the Lord's Supper and redefines the way we forever think of bread and juice of the vine. And he tells of his coming betrayal. And he tells of the fact that Peter will deny him. And then he goes out into the garden. And he has the disciples watch, stand watch. At least they're supposed to. We know from the Gospels they fell asleep. But... He leaves them and he goes and he prays. You remember what he prayed? He prayed, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. That's in Mark and Matthew, my Father. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. We, we see at the Garden of Gethsemane, Son's prayer of total submission to the Father's will. And we think about this prayer today that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we're reminded of the Son's prayer of submission to the Father's will. We're reminded of the, the agony of the moment. As Scripture notes that Jesus was so agonized that he would bend down, he would pray this prayer again. It says he prays the same words. He repeats the same words to the Father. And as he does, it is so intense that the capillaries burst in his forehead and he starts sweating drops of blood as he submits to the Father's will. And he would go on to be betrayed, be denied, to suffer, to be crucified killed and ultimately to rise from the grave just as he said he would the son submitted to the father's will we're going to close our time in observance of the lord's supper our deacons are going to make their way down and we're going to close today and remember celebrate what christ did and that moment when he said, take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. Do we long for the things of God? 
What is our greatest desire? Do we long for his kingdom to come? Do we live in a way that we reverence his name? Are we living out his will? Thanks be to God that while I would say we fail on all of those questions, thanks be to God that Christ was perfect. He lived without sin. He submitted perfectly to the will of the Father. He went and he died on the cross for our sins. And he rose victoriously over the grave. He has accomplished what we cannot. And so we remember and we celebrate that this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning as we close our time celebrating what you did on the cross. God, we, we give you praise, Lord Jesus. We give you praise for your sacrifice, for your work, for your perfect life. God, we thank you for our salvation. And God, as we take part in this time, God, our prayer is that your name will be reverenced, will be hallowed, holy, holy, holy are you, O God. And God, our, our desire and our longing is that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done. So God, as we celebrate and think upon your work on the cross, Lord, we pray that you would direct our gaze to you. This we pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.